Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. As clinicians, we spend a decade or more as trainees learning to take care of patients. When we finally start our careers, we want to build research programs, but then we find that our years of clinical training did not adequately prepare us to lead a research program. Through no fault of our own, we struggle to find mentors, and when we can't, we quit. However, clinicians hold the keys to the greatest research breakthroughs. For this reason, the Clinician Researcher podcast exists to give academic clinicians the tools to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. Now, introducing your host, Teosi Onwemina. All right, everybody, welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast. I'm your host, Teresi Unwomena, and it is such a pleasure to be here today. I have an amazing guest with us today, and I'm going to take a minute to allow him to introduce himself. Daiwai, thank you so much for being on the show. Welcome. Well, thank you. So my name is Daiwai Olson. I'm a nurse at Dallas, Texas at UT Southwestern, and I've been involved in clinical research on a formal scale since 2001, but I think all of us get that first clinical research bug at about the age of three or four. Those are my favorite. The little, the little super scientists who, I, I remember watching one of my, my grandkids threw something into a pond, kind of looked and then got something else and threw it in and, and was doing the, does it float, does it sink experiment? And I'm like, yeah, that's clinical research. <laughs> so, so I think I've always been a researcher. I just didn't have the, the street cred yet. Oh, I, I love what you say. So what you're saying is that the curiosity that's alive in us from when we're young is really what prepares us to be clinician researchers later on in life. What, yeah, I think it's what drives us to be clinician researchers. What, what prepares us is learning how to ask the right questions, right? I mean, we've got that. I think a, a friend of mine back in, in high school argued about everything and should have been a researcher because researchers were, were basically trying to find ways to win an argument. We're not taking no for an answer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you're right. You, you thwarted me there. You, you figured out how to make it that, that you, rejected my null hypothesis and and I'm going to get more data. I'm going to, because I still think I'm right, but now I've got to test this and build the data to eventually prove that, yeah, I was right all along. I just didn't ask the question in the right way. So I like it. I like it. Well, tell us your story. How did you get here? Well, I, I got here I started out college back in in 1980, uh, hoping to become a, a scientist. I was I was looking to become an aquacultural bioscientist. I wanted to grow plants using water, and and then Ron Reagan came into power, and lots of, of things happened, and I lost my scholarship and and was homeless for a little bit, and, and found that there was a nursing shortage. So I thought, ah. In two years, I could get a nursing degree, make enough money 
to go back to school and become a scientist. And and so I I was in in nursing school and I met my wife. I got married. I was a nurse for about seven years, and a nurse named Denise Antle, who I owe my my life to. I was blathering on about how I'm going to get out of nursing and do something for her. And she walked, this is in the 80s, you were allowed to do this. She walked up to me and slapped me across the face and said, what are you talking about? You're a nurse and you're a good nurse. And it was at that moment that I, I realized like, yeah, I, I love what I'm doing. I grew up, I didn't know men could be nurses. I was the only nurse in the hospital at the time who was male, and and I'm like, yeah. And and she mentored me and was wonderful and caring, which all nurses are. And I realized I had to go back to school and get 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 the training that I needed to do the things I wanted to do. I had originally come out of high school thinking I was going to save the world by growing plants with water, and realized that. I still wanted to do my little part to sort of make a difference in the world. And, and so I went to nursing school and, and finished with that. I moved to North Carolina. I graduated from University of North Carolina with my, my PhD in nursing, spent uh, 20 years in, in North Carolina at Duke, and then was recruited to Dallas, where I am now. And I'm in the Department of Neurology and Neurosurgery. And I run something called the Neuroscience Nursing Research Fellowship, training more people on how they can be researchers. Ooh, I love that. So now I want you, because now you coming at this, not just as a clinician researcher, but also someone who trains people to be researchers. So what, what is needed for clinicians to make that transition from, I'm a clinician, I take care of patients, to I'm a researcher, and, and I, can, I can move the research enterprise forward? We, I think we are not very good at letting people know they can do it. We've, we've put research on such a high pedestal that we almost approach it like, you got to prove to me that you, lowly person that you are, can someday become an academic. And that's just crap. Like, like anybody can do this. I'm not, I'm not a particularly smart person. I just work really hard. And, and so I approach it by let's, let's your first study, because everybody who comes to me, there's, there's two studies they have in mind, right? Study number one is I'm going to collect 400,000 variables from 270,000 patients and answer one question that will solve world peace. The other person says, I'm, I'm going to do this one study with like seven people that answers 248 questions that will solve world peace. And instead of that, I'm like, how about let's just do one simple study you can do in about a year that's going to solve like this little teeny tiny little question here. And that's going to move the ball forward. And they do it and they go, you know, I, I did it. And it wasn't, it, 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 it's not a JAMA paper, but it did answer a question that we've had. And they, and, and those people, I think, not everyone, but 
some of them get the bug and go, okay, now I want to answer a harder question and a better question and, and get, you know, use, use more variables and I, I want to get statistics. If you were teaching someone how to play chess, you wouldn't start out going, you know, like, well, first you have to learn the queen's gambit, right? You, you build your way into it. So that's sort of how I approach research is let them put a toe in the water. And, and frankly, some people decide they don't want to do it. And I'm okay with that. If, if after doing research, you discover you don't want to do research, that's a good thing. Find out I early. Like, I like it. So what, what you're talking about is the door is open for everyone. Everyone should have the opportunity. It shouldn't be a thing where you select people out to do it. And, and, and you start small and people achieve small wins and then they can get bigger and bigger. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everything we do, if we really boil it down to it, you know, um, the greatest chef in the world started out making a peanut butter jelly sandwich and was really proud of it too. Mm. You know, my wife is, is now a phenomenal chef. She was cooking with one of our grandkids who got to stir something, but proudly announced, I made dinner. Now we could have, right, the academic in us wants to go, you didn't make dinner. All you did was one little, but really, you know, why not let them own it? There's no harm in that. And, and start, start with those, get those small wins and, and build that confidence. You can certainly name one person you've met in your life who doesn't have any good ideas. I can't think of anyone. You're right. You're right. Now, tell me, tell me what are the major challenges you see in, for clinicians who want to transition to research roles? And maybe if you want to speak from the perspective of the clinicians themselves and from the perspective of the institution. Well, from the perspective of the clinician, and I don't know if you'll have to edit this out. <laughs> Funding is an issue. The NIH is irrevocably broken. It is a failed institution. It's also the best game in town, and that's why we all do it. I've never talked to anyone behind closed doors who hasn't said, oh, yeah, the NIH is broken. It, it's all about who you know, and, and, and it's an old, you know, it's the old boys club. And the, but we have to fight our way into it. So that's a challenge, is how do, how do, how do we get in there? One way we can do that is, is partner with industry. Industry in the past 20 years has gotten a dirty, like if you say, oh, I'm doing a, a study with sponsored by a drug company, people are like, oh, a drug company, hey? Huh. Well, if I don't help this drug company answer the question correctly, they're going to they're gonna do harm, right? This, this device company, I, they need some clinical expertise to identify something that's going to solve a problem that we that needs solving. So we do need to partner with them. And that helps people get started, right, and transitioning. The other thing is exactly what we talked about before. Go for a small win. Don't start out. when you, If you're going to get started and you want to be a clinician scientist, a clinician researcher, Start small, get a win, 
I like it. Okay. So yes, I mean, you're talking about really diversifying your funding sources as well. Don't just have a one track. I want to go to the NIH. I want to go to the NIH because it's hard. And while you're pursuing that goal, you should be pursuing other funding opportunities as well, including industry. Yeah, industry, there's there's an awful lot of money available for research that goes unclaimed because nobody asked for it. There's there's grants and there's there's foundations and there's people trying to give away money. And you know, there's 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 philanthropists who want to give money to solve a problem, but no one's ever asked them. And and if you if you start small and you're open to, well, you know, maybe this is only a thousand dollars, maybe this is only ten thousand, fifteen thousand dollars. What can I do? How can I ask a question that will move the ball forward with just this much fun, much funding? Not every question needs fourteen million dollars, and you can you can do a lot. There's there's important questions in the clinical environment that still need to be asked. Some of them don't don't take a lot of money at all. Yeah, I, I like it. It's like not not despising any source of funding, being open and and just being small. I'm starting small because sometimes we are looking for the million dollar, couple of million dollar grant. But what can you do with a couple of ten thousand or or a hundred thousand? Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Tommy, what are the major the insights, major insights that you've gained along your journey that younger people who are just starting really should know? I think that one of the insights is is clinical research. We've taken we've sort of taken a a, a backseat to binge science over the past 20, 30 decades that you know that we've we've focused in on on killing mice and things like that as as science and and if you do clinical research, don't apologize. Don't like own it. That's where that's what your love is, and and there's a lot of importance to that. And so so don't don't apologize for what you love. And I think that's one is own it and be proud of what you're doing. Two is I was taught that clinical research is dirty because of all the variables. And 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 it it's not dirty, it's filthy. It's it's more, it's worse than dirty. But embrace it because all of that dirt, which statistically is what we call noise, right? It's error, it's variance, it's it's confounders, it's unexplained variables and the influence. Well, that's that's sometimes the best small start, right? Is how can you reduce the noise by trying to clean up? A, there's an awful lot of dirt that needs to be cleaned up in clinical research. We all do almost everything different. And I personally think as a clinician scientist, a lot of that's important, right? Whether or not you start, you, you start the the IV and the left or right arm does that make a difference? I, I don't know, but it'd be awfully easy to easy to figure it out, right? When when we give a pint of blood, well, 
why do we do that? Why the volumes that like to us volume is so important, right? But is it three twenty four mils or four twenty five or is there a difference between two hundred and eighty and two hundred and eighty one? At what point in time? Like these are easy questions, I think, to ask, but they become really, really important because the big mega trials, right? The big mega trial will say infuse one liter at the onset of X. Okay, well, most of us know that a, a liter of saline can have anywhere from 950 to 1100 mils. So a liter ain't even a liter, but then some scientist massages this data, right? And comes up with this regression plot that, that shows like for every 100 mils, X predicts Y. And you know that's flawed. So you can, you can own this. You, th these questions that we have during rounds, these questions that, you know, it's, as a nurse, I, I shipped into at 6.45. The 6.30 p.m. question, right? That's, that's the one that needs to be asked. And that's the one that as a, as a new clinician researcher, like, like dig into it because you're passionate about it. You're passionate about it enough that, that you're going to go to breakfast, breakfast with someone or you're going to argue with someone down in the cafeteria over that little piece, hang, hang on to that and, and, and own it. Thank you, Daiwai. We know one of the things that what you're saying brings up for me is many times clinicians will say, well, I just need to get on my mentor's project. I just need to get on my mentor's project. And they hate their mentor's project. <laughs> but it's hard to start. What is your advice for them? Well, first off, if you, if you hate your mentor's project, get a different mentor. Because now, although I say that, another one of my, my mentors was Suzanne Thory. And her, she studied neo, high-risk neonatal infant feeding. I don't care anything about that, right? It was all about like these, these preterm infants and, and did, they, did their oxygen saturation drop if the if they use this kind of a nipple versus that or that it meant like i didn't care nothing about that i hated her project but she was a brilliant mentor and her patients were so similar to mine because i'm in neurocritical care my patients can't talk to me her patients couldn't talk to me and family is a really big deal in the neuro ICU because they're they're present and they influence care. Like, you know, they they change things, they do, they move. Family's a big deal in in the NICU. I use a lot of machines to understand my my patients, right? ICP monitors, heart monitors, oxygen, intitled CO2, like stroke volume, lots of I from from these machines. I derive an understanding of the patient because the patient can't tell me where it hurts. Same with her, right? So, you know, my, my people's brains aren't fully functioning. Her infant brain isn't fully functioning. So what we, what we found was we have a lot 
of areas where where there is a commonality and and that's how we formed this relationship and she agreed to mentor me um at first when when we were talking you know she was like i don't think i'm the right person and and so i think the answer to your question is if you hate your mentor's project but you really like that person and you really think that i bet there's somewhere that maybe it's the techniques they're using or 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 how they approach a problem find that piece you may do a completely different study and and as mentors i mean you're a mentor i'm a mentor i love anytime someone is foolish enough to listen to me and and mentors love to mentor so i bet that person really does want to help you succeed even if it's not in their particular i i still have never done a study with an ego <laughs> i love it i think one of the things that sometimes especially when the younger people are is they come thinking they have to be like their mentor and it doesn't have to be that way but what you do want to take something from your mentor and what are you taking doesn't have to be the exact same project but there's definitely something that they offer that you can take into your own project and that's important to consider as well yeah that's a brilliant way to put it you know is and maybe that's that's one of the things people need to understand approach it recognizing that the the myth a lot of what what happens in in research and medicine in general is these myths that everybody has to take this trajectory and you you feel like you're you're the you're like the 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 outlier and the the truth is we're all outliers and that's that's a benefit like the more outliers we have in healthcare the better because we all of our patients are outliers mm. and so we need we need more outliers mm. and so instead of thinking you don't belong think like you got to be in there to to to, to broaden that piece. Absolutely. And and now speaking to kind of like bringing everybody in, uh, a question that I'm excited to ask you is why should every clinical study include a nurse investigator? Because I need to be fun. No. <laughs> <laughs> you had mentioned, and and it took me, I I was, I finished my degree probably five or six years before I learned how much research training most physicians get, which it turns out is close to none. <laughs> and, Maybe one month or two in the yeah. two of training. Hello. <laughs> right. And, and, and that opened my eyes to, so most, most nurse, PhD prepared nurse researchers have spent five to seven years of their life learning how to do clinical research. Like I, I spent seven years in my PhD program. I learned I took three different year-long courses in methodology, just how to do I spent two semesters in a theory class learning how to ask a question. That was it, right? So one big reason to get a nurse researcher on your team is we've probably spent a lot of time learning how to do research. Now, we may not have the same question as you, but we have a whole backpack 
of ways to ask questions and to dig down to questions. Merle Michelle, she, she was at UNC. And I just remember spending three hours with her where she kept saying, what the question? And I would say, oh, the question is, she goes, no, no, that's not the question, go deeper. What's the question? And I'm like crying, like, I don't know. <laughs> but but she, she taught us how to drill down to a really good question. And so a lot of us uh, have, have spent that. And we understand, like, nurses speak family and physician. We're translators, yeah. right? We're at the bedside for 12 hours at a row, the same bedside in the ICU. And so we can speak to the reality of how are you going to collect your data? What data exists? What about the data fidelity? Mm. Like a lot of, and, and if you're a physician and you believe this, I'm going to help you out right now. It's not true. Most of what's in the EMR is junk. Just because it says the blood pressure was 120 over 80 at 10 a.m. doesn't mean anything. It doesn't tell you what the blood pressure was at 959. It might not even be 120 over 80 at 10 a.m. It may have been that the nurse checked the blood pressure somewhere around 945. We wrote down on our little piece of paper or, or the computer grabbed it or something. And, and so if you understand the fidelity of the data, which nurses intimately understand how stuff gets into the EMR, that's going to allow you to ask a better question. But also because we understand the clinical environment from the perspective of what's really happening, right? And what happens for you as a physician, when you as a physician walk into the room, like it, the world stops, like the, the, the nurses, the patient, the family, everybody's like, okay, they're here. And, but that's not what happens as soon as you turn your back. And that's the environment where we can help design the study to get you the data that you really want and to fit it in. So, so we're, we're, and I'm going to make up a fake example so no one gets offended, that a physician says, oh, well, we're going to get our CTs at 9 a.m., right? Well, 9 a.m. is like one of the busiest times for nurses. We got rounds and passing our meds and picking up uh, after breakfast and getting that first walk in. Dude, how about 10 a.m.? Does it really have to be 9 a.m.? Is 9 a.m. a magical time? Mm -hmm. And then when you talk to them, they're like, no, I don't care. But no, or two or three or four. Well, how about at four o'clock in the afternoon? Yeah, that'd be fine. Okay, that we can do, right? And so having those conversations with a nurse, it's easier to, to it's easier to collect the data. It's easier to enroll patients. So some of my my residents and fellows are like, oh well, we'll just consent the family when da da. I go, family's not always here. Oh, they're always here. No, no. When you as a physician say, I'm going to be there at 10 a.m., there's 12 family members there. Mm. But family ain't always here. Mm. Right. So so I think we have I think we can bring a lot towards making your study more successful. One, because we've, we've been trained in how to do research. Two, we understand the clinical environment 
in a different way than the physicians. We're not better than physicians. We're not worse than physicians. We are a different prof profession. And the more diversity we get with, with the, the lens of looking at the problem, the more comprehensively we can understand and approach the question that will solve the problem. I love it. I love the idea of the need, the diversity of perspectives that strengthens every research study. And yeah. so it's like if you are invested in your study actually succeeding and coming up with an answer that actually is meaningful and real, you should involve the people who are kind of drivers of patient care at the bedside. Yeah. I love the way you put that. I love it. Can I start over again and say that? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this, though. Okay, two things. Because, you know, I listened to a talk that you gave at the American Society for Aphoresis meeting in, in April, which is phenomenal. And one of the things you talk about is authorship for your nursing colleagues. And so I want you to speak to that. And I also want you to speak to, as physicians, we don't necessarily have a lot of nurses in our circles research-wise, even though, of course, we're interacting with nurses clinically. Where do you go to find a nurse who's trained in research who can be part of your study? I bet there's more of them there than you think. Right. It's kind of like saying, well, I don't have anyone who's who's interested in I don't know. I don't have anyone who's who's interested in the same band that I'm interested in. Well, have you told have you have you have you asked? Right? And then you find out that I, I actually so do you know who Lindsay Sterling is? Okay. First off, oh. gotta look up Lindsay Sterling. She is amazing. And as a musician, she's just like changed my perspective of classical music. But I'm like, yeah, nobody knows. And 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 so I was I, I when I do statistics, I always play music, and and I never I always use classical because it I don't want to sing the words while I'm I'm writing code. And I was playing that, and somebody walked by and they go, oh, that's Lindsey Sterling. You right. And then I mentioned, so, and it turns out a whole lot of people are into Lindsey Sterling. But I, it's, it's that whole thing where you, we all think we're the outliers until you mm -hmm. find out, like, we're all outliers. And so you may have PhD-prepared nurses that you just haven't asked about or nurses who are interested in research that you haven't asked about. When I started the, the Neuroscience Nursing Research Center here in, in Dallas, they had... They had done almost zero clinical research here with nursing. I, I have had over 250 nurses in 10 years do studies. Mm. Every, they all want to do it. Nope. And, and, and a lot of it is like, well, yeah, no one's ever asked. Mm. And it's like, so, so ask. Just ask and, and, and you shall find. That's one. In terms of authorship. The, the international guidelines, International Committee on Medical Journal Ethics and the Committee on Publication Ethics all share basically that there are four criteria to meet authorship. And if you meet those criteria, you should be an author. And it boils down to, did the person provide an intellectual contribution? Now, you can say no, and that they didn't, and you say, well, one of the things is, did they make critical revisions to the manuscript? And they didn't. 
well, did you show them the manuscript? Did you give the manuscript to a nurse? Because like you said, you wrote here that all patients get out of bed on day one and they actually don't, right? Because, because we know things and you may think they did, and, you know, or, or that you may think that you wrote an order and something happened. They don't always do that. <laughs> so, uh, so, so they can make critical revisions, but also it's important to recognize and, and, and I'll tell you why it benefits you as a physician to get a nurse as an author. First off, it opens up a whole nother range of, of places you can publish your work, which is important, but also it gives you, it gives you that buy-in, right? I mean, that when you're, when you're going to do another study again in the, in, I'm in the ICU, wherever you happen to be. You're going to come into the ICU you're going to say, hey, I got this, this thing we're going to do, everybody. And the nurses are like, so you want us to do your work again and you're not going to recognize us? Yeah, sure. We'll get on that right away. Yeah. But, if you're, but, if, but if you're like, Dr. X, when she asks us to help, like she, she rewards us, she includes us and she recognizes our value. Yeah, I am, I am so into that. Uh, and and she's gonna she's gonna ask like how can I make this study better and and we can we can solve problems together like most nurses innately in our in our blood in our DNA in our training we want to help so you know that doesn't mean we shouldn't be recognized like you, you should be recognized for your contribution and that's the authorship piece. Absolutely. Absolutely. I will tell you that recently I asked one of our nurses who's been working on a project with me to be an author. And it really, I, to be honest, the, the response was overwhelming. She was like, I mean, she was so excited, told her supervisor. I got to hear about it from the supervisor. And to be honest, she's just run off with the project. It's like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's been good. I, I do agree. I think anybody who's made any significant contribution really should be an author, whether they're paid or not. They should be an author. And so I, I appreciate that that's your perspective. And I agree. I think all physicians should think about that. Okay. And I'm glad it worked out well. Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes. I, I was actually thinking, I was like, I should do this more often. But I, I love what you said about inviting people because you just assume people are not interested. But, but, but we should open the doors and see who comes in. Yeah. 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 Look for someone who's not like you so you can get something different that you don't already know. And it's always a great journey. Oh, I love that. I love that. I love that. Look for someone who's not like you so you can get something different. Yes. Yes. It's, it's the diversity bonus. I love it. Yeah. It, diversity bonus, but, but also it keeps you out of the echo chamber, right? Mm, that's right. That's and, right. And, and it's the echo chamber that ruins good science because yes. you, 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 know, you should not do like, on, on many ways, we, we get guilty of, I'm going to design this study to prove I was right. And those studies inevitably fail. You have to design a study to ask a question. And, and the echo chamber will kill you. That's why you have to, you have to get that, that broad depth of, of perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that people can question the interpretation and, and, and give you different perspectives on how an, an interpretation you may not have thought of. Yeah, yeah. 
This is really good. Okay, you've talked about so many great things, and I'm sad to say that we're coming to the end of the show, but I wanted to ask, if, what, what haven't I asked you? What's an important thing for our audience to know that, that we haven't talked about yet? Mm. Oh, I, I know. We haven't talked about privademics. Mm, privademics? Privademics, yeah, yeah. So um, privademics used to be a derogatory term, I think, where academics, right? You, you go through med school and you get your degree and, and then you have a choice. You can go into academia or into private practice. And it was, it was almost, you know, it was almost like the Montagues and the Capulets, right? You could be one or the other. And, and, and academics did research and privademics didn't. Private practice didn't. Well, along comes our need to understand how research translates across multiple environments of care and so academics back in the you know late 90s early 2000s started reaching out to private practice say hey will you be part of this study and private practice docs who are smart people right and they're working in in uh, east texas with a hospital you know a seven bed hospital they have questions too and it turns out that if smart people working in non-academic centers ask good questions, they can still contribute to the overall body of knowledge in a way that me working in the center of Dallas can't, right? And that is a private practice academic. And you can actually look in Medline, and there are now articles written about privademics. So do just because you are out in the in in a clinical practice or you are in an area hundreds of miles away from a university setting, that does not mean you cannot do research. And it doesn't mean you can't do meaningful research. Because you have a different environment, different questions, different patient population. Right. I had this, I I, I know you're running out of time. I, I got fortunate. I was asked to to talk, give a lecture on the Navajo reservation once. And the docs there, they fly in for seven days and they treat anything and everything that comes into this four-bed hospital, right? You might, you might refill a prescription for hypertension, go deliver a baby, take care of a trauma patient, and then advise somebody on on mental health all within like an hour. That is an environment of care. I can't even conceive of being in, in, a, in a high resource area. Who's gonna do the research on that? Mm. Who's gonna figure out best practice for critical access hospitals mm. if it's not a private practice? Mm. So, so just because you're, you, if you can ask a question, you can be a researcher. I love it. The door is open for everybody to participate. You don't have to be in an academic medical center to do research. You need to be able to ask good questions. I love it. Right. Oh, I love it. That was a great, great note to end on. You know, Jai, okay. you've just, you've just, I mean, it's just, every time I hear from you, I, I feel like I'm inspired. I learn new things. And so I think it's my life's mission now to hear from you more. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope our paths cross much more often and I've enjoyed talking to you. 
No, it's been my pleasure. And I know my audience has enjoyed listening. I would say to everyone who's listening, this was a dynamite, dynamite episode. And someone else has got to hear it. If you're a mentor, you need to share it with a mentee. If you're a mentee, you should share it with your mentor, your peer group. And if you are in academia, you should share it with someone in private practice because they need to hear about right. privatemics and how they can get involved as well. well and with I your nurses. Say, and with your nurses, yes. Every one of your studies from now on should include a nurse as a co-investigator. <laughs> I love thank it. Wai, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. All right, everyone. We'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. If you found the information in this episode to be helpful, don't keep it all to yourself. Someone else needs to hear it. So take a minute right now and share it. As you share this episode, you become part of our mission to help launch a new generation of clinician researchers who make transformative discoveries that change the way we do healthcare.